Okay, welcome back to the Messy City Podcast. This is Kevin Klinkenberg. I have previously had on the show uh, two ladies that we referred to as the Jennifers. And uh, today uh, we get two mats we, that we just call the mats. And the mats and the Jennifers uh, ironically kind of work in the same world uh, with each other uh, in architecture planning and this whole notion of pre-approved uh, buildings. So it's, uh, it's a great pleasure to have Matthew Petty and Matthew Hoffman here on today. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Kevin. It's great to be here. Well, uh, I, I want to get right into it, but uh, before we get too deep into this discussion about uh, pattern zones and pre-approved plans, I do think it's always helpful for people to get to know who you are and your background. Um, and I know Matt Hoffman, uh, you have a more conventional background, probably more like me in the sense that you come from architecture in that world. And uh, Matthew Petty, you're just you're much more interesting. So I'm going to start with you. <laughs> not Hoffman. It's not to say you're not interesting, but I know. I mean, I know architects. So, um, but <laughs> but Pat, you know, Petty uh, comes from like a whole different world. This is like and, a seeing you cocktail party here. It's like oh, just another yeah, architect. moving on. It, exactly. I mean, you can't shake a stick without hitting twenty architects there. So. <laughs> um, but anyway, Matthew Petty, um, let's talk a little bit about your background uh, because you're you're now doing this kind of consulting business and helping communities with um, uh, the world of architecture and planning. But that was not where you came from uh, originally. Yeah, uh, it has been great the past couple of years to be focused on this full time. Um, when Matt and I founded this company to to work on it, it was after. We had done a couple of prototype programs and we're starting to identify pre-approved buildings as what we think of as a, an emerging trend, a, a rapidly emerging trend among innovative jurisdictions. Um, before that, you know, my, my background and I think Matt's as well re really made this idea um, ripe for us, really fresh pickings for us. We, we both have a, a background uh, that blends a private sector and government. And um, for me, I was a council member for almost 13 years, elected four times in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Uh, I love serving, uh, but ultimately, uh, especially after the pandemic and, and seeing this uh, trend uh, among planning directors really come into fruition and wanting to focus on it full time, I felt like I needed to resign from the council in order to um, do a good job in the business and, uh, in the, with the business being so busy, I didn't have enough time left to do a, a, a good job, at least up to my own expectations of being a council member. Um, along the way, I, I've rubbed shoulders with tons of architects. Architects are my favorite people. I got my start in a community design studio. Actually, that, that's where Matt and I met. Uh, and, uh, between the council and the design studio, and then trying to do a, a small scale mixed use project on my own and, and, and learning about the development process, it was easy to see that permitting was such an important issue and potentially a, a solvable issue. And, and that's what we're trying to do with these sorts of programs. So before we get uh, too far into that, I do think it's interesting to share your experience uh, developing a building. Uh, I talk with a lot of people uh, who are rookie developers or people who would like to get into development. Uh, and obviously that kind of led to your passion to doing what you're doing now. But could you talk for a minute about that experience of uh, building a small mixed-use building in, in Fayetteville? 
Yeah, well, I learned a ton, uh, you know, and, and I was fortunate enough as a, as a successful project. And even though I had to had to wait, wait a few years before I really got paid out on that project, you know, it, it was the, the best investment I made both financially and in terms of my education. And to be able to see both sides really equipped me uh, with the ability in my role as a council member to determine if if the things people were complaining about or advocating for were, re- were really legitimate. And when I, when I took on that project, I didn't really expect that that was going to be something I learned. When I, when I took on that project, it was really um, halfway out of spite. And, you know, the other half just uh, agreed to be able to pay off my own student loans. <laughs> uh, and um, out of, when I say I, I did that project out of spite, uh, you know, I considered it a duty as, as being a council member at the time to advocate for better design and uh, for, for better urban design and, and better site design with developers. And um, I would try to do that a lot, especially as an urbanist and especially as a younger person. Um, and, you know, they would humor me in terms of taking meetings, but, you know, they, they wouldn't ever really implement what I was, what I was recommending. And I don't, I don't think people really believed that uh, small scale urban infill was profitable or even feasible. And uh, I, I set out to prove that it was and really to develop a case study for, uh, for the local development community here whenever I took on that project. And, and I'm proud of it. It's uh, three stories, uh, nine apartments, a smoothie bar, a tap room, uh, a, a parking lot uh, that people that is small enough that, that people, you know, really cherish their spaces and, and protect them. Uh, you know, so I feel I feel like it ticks a lot of boxes in terms of competent, good design, although it's not a flashy, flashy project. It's definitely a background building in the neighborhood. Yeah. OK. Well, so Matt Hoffman, did you do the architecture for that job? <laughs> I did. I did not. I was kind of just getting to know uh, Matthew Petty at the time, uh, as he mentioned. We worked together at the Community Design Center, and I, I think both of us through that experience, uh, you know, don't want to cast any aspersions anywhere, but I think there's a, a shared experience among a lot of community planners and urban designers of working on beautiful plans, maybe for the purpose of, of trying to get awards or, or, or for other goals and having them just kind of languish on dusty shelves and, and not really get converted into anything meaningful. And so uh, I was certainly motivated at, at, at the time and, and through our current work uh, to try to find ways around that problem. And I think that's something that I share with, with Matthew Petty and, and something that really enlivens our work. And, you know, I also think it's interesting, both you both you guys obviously are in Northwest Arkansas and it's a region that's growing and changing uh, rapidly. Uh, I've previously had Allie Quinlan uh, on the show to talk about some of her efforts. Um, how much does, do you think the, how much has it had an impact on your work just seeing the, the change and the rapid change in, in your region? Well, it's immense. Um, and, and I think, you know, one of the things about Northwest Arkansas is just the radical shift in scales. If you're someone who's interested in urbanism, you know, you, you can find things to care about and find things to make better, you know, anywhere from a curb detail all the way up to a 350-acre master plan. You know, we're, we're an office that's been really fortunate to, to work at both ends of that spectrum. Um, but I think that's one thing that makes our region unique. You know, it's, it's not a Charleston where you're just doing you know, kitchen renovations and, and, and 
little historic preservation projects, you know, as much yeah. as we'd all love to work in Charleston sometimes. Yeah. Northwest Arkansas is, is a growing and a thriving region. And uh, it's, it's, the time is now. It's, it's right here. So Matt, this is a really interesting question, Kevin. Um, for, for me, you know, I, I came to have a love and a fascination with cities somewhere else, but Northwest Arkansas is really where I had my first, um, can I say, oh shit moment when, when it comes to what cities and towns are really, are really struggling with. And it was when uh, I ran some numbers, some, some, uh, some projections on housing demand. And this was back in 2017. The numbers I ran said that um, for Northwest Arkansas as a whole, we would need close to 80,000, perhaps more new homes, uh, houses and apartments and the like by 2030, um, just to maintain pricing where, where, where it already was. And when I ran those numbers, um, it was really at the beginning of a recognition that we were entering a, a huge housing crisis from our population boom, our ongoing population boom. Um, I had just learned that more than 30 people were moving here every day, hmm. and that, that number continues to go up. And, um, you know, it's, it's not that every region or every town is booming. Um, it's not that all the lessons in Northwest Arkansas are directly applicable every, everywhere else. But um, for me, seeing the scale of that problem and realizing that really no matter what jurisdiction you are in, you don't really have solutions to address the scale of, of these housing challenges. We, we celebrate uh, housing projects that construct, uh, you know, at best a couple of hundred units at a time and more often a handful or a couple of dozen units at a time. And uh, the scale of the problem of, of people who are experiencing homelessness, of, of people who struggle to find places to live whenever they relocate for a job, uh, of, of people who are, who are can't find places to come back to, um, it just dwarfs the scale of, of what our solutions are able to achieve today. And so when I say Northwest Arkansas is really where I, I had my first oh shit moment, it was it was really running those numbers and realizing that we, we needed completely new solutions, solutions that were untested, that had not been tried before, and that were designed to scale for, from the beginning. Um, and I, I do think that's a lesson that's really directly applicable in a lot of places. Yeah, I think that I think that's a great uh, jumping off point. Um, and let me put it to you, put it to you this way. You know, I, I came from uh, the world of architecture and urban design and, and working in new urbanism for a lot of years and was was definitely in that uh, first generation of practitioners that were evangelists for form based codes. Uh, and uh, I, I think uh, we all felt like we developed some really good tools that form based codes were far superior to tr- typical kind of Euclidean zoning uh, and also paved the way for places to become uh, more urban with better buildings. Um, and so I think for a lot of, and in, in fact, I've even been a faculty member for the Four Base Code Institute. And, you know, it, it was something that we, we were all really excited about. Um, I, I think it's also fair. It's a totally fair criticism to look at form based codes and even a lot of the really good ones that have been done and say, you know, how much, uh, how, how much has really been built uh, in those districts where those codes were adopted, uh, and uh, how scalable is that process of uh, doing what the Foreign Based Code Institute suggests, which is doing a master plan for a neighborhood and then adopting a code? Uh, and and I wonder if that if any of that experience uh, kind of played into your notion of trying to create. Uh, try to get to similar results, but with a whole different uh, process. 
Well, I actually have a quote here. So we uh, we won a, an award from CNU a couple of years ago, and, and one of the jurors said something about our project that uh, that I've thought a lot about ever since. What you said just reminded me of it. He said um, that our, our pattern zones in Bryan, Texas, were a critical next step in progressing the form-based code idea and making it easy for amateurs and developers who are not design folks to, to do something great by default. And so I think, you know, when we have this conversation about growing local capacity to do great things and doing them at large scales, we need systems that are different. The systems we have don't work. We know that. And so, you know, Matthew and I are building something I think that, that's really unique. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I think you, you, to be very specific about form-based codes um, or Euclidean codes or, or anything, what, what we're trying to do, you know, in a, on, a, on a strict basis could be implemented with, with any, within any code regime. But we, we would never tell anybody, in fact, we tell people all the time that they should adopt form-based codes. You know, if they're struggling with issues that form-based codes will solve, and so many communities are, they should have them. What we're dealing with when we talk about permitting, when we talk about using pre-approvals as, as a solution, we need to remember it's not it's not a comprehensive solution to all of the challenges that we're facing when it comes to design of our cities, design of our neighborhoods, design of our streets, design of our buildings. Um, it only really addresses the permitting side of this. Now, you can use permitting and, and expedited permitting and pre-approvals as a really effective hook. Uh, if you will, a, a really effective mechanism that, that you can attach uh, experimental policies or contemporary best practices to in order to get at some of these other design issues. Um, but that's not the primary purpose of, of pre-approvals. We certainly want to elevate the quality and, and create a reference standard instead of a minimum standard like most codes function on, even even form-based codes right, f function under a, under a minimum standard. Um, and pre-approvals definitely work best with, with form-based codes. But if we were ever going to criticize form-based codes, we probably wouldn't. Instead, what we, what we would prefer to do is to criticize our expectations that we had and that so many city officials still have when it comes to uh, omnibus planning efforts, whether it's a form-based code or it's a new unified development ordinance or it's any other kind of, of mass rewrite or, or, uh, or marketed effort. They're often presented as silver bullet solutions, right? If we can just get this part done, if we could just fix our regulations, if we could just repeal our, in, our impact fees, if we could just do X, Y, or Z, you know, these kinds of things are often held up as, as silver bullets. Um, but we, we would make the case, and we would do this quite strongly, that that, um, that that is not correct. There are too many facets of housing challenges, of, of infill challenges, of broader challenges with neighborhood and city design for there to ever be any solution that is really going to check all of those boxes. And so we have a deep criticism for the expectations that say form-based codes were going to be enough. That was never the right. case, right? They're necessary, but insufficient. Yeah. And, and I, same with pre-approved buildings, necessary, but insufficient. Yeah. And, you know, I, I can probably, um, from my vantage point, perhaps be a little more critical. And I think one of the things we talked about when we were together in Oklahoma City and just the challenge that I wanted to put to some of our colleagues was uh, if, you know, we've had a, a few hundred form-based codes adopted uh, around the country uh, in, a, in a country with 19,000, you know, municipalities. Uh, and um, most uh, most of the ones that were adopted were kind of one one off in small places. I mean, I know I wrote some that were adopted. 
um, places that I can think of where they were adopted. That was like the one part of town where they did it. They didn't do it anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if we were thinking of that like a startup uh, product, we would consider that to be a failure. And it would be time for us to go back into the lab and figure out uh, something else because it just clearly hasn't scaled like we hoped it would. And there, there are a lot of reasons for that. And it's not to criticize the effort. The effort was needed uh, and it was good. Uh, and you learn things by, by experimenting and doing things. So uh, I, that's a very long uh, way for me to give you an intro to talk about what exactly it is in your approach with the pattern zones that is uh, new and different. Uh, and if you could just kind of walk walk me through or walk uh, listeners through what how you would explain the pattern zone process. Well, I, I'll let Matt take the bulk of that question, but I do want to respond to kind of the, the heart of, of your response there, which which was to do with the kind of the mistakes that have been made over the last you know, 20, 30 years with, with coding and, and, and scale in particular. You know, we were fortunate to work on some of the first pre-approved building programs in the country. We did uh, we did them as really boutique architecture projects where we were designing uh, complete sets of buildings for individual communities. And um, that was that was fun in a very kind of CNU way, right? Mm-hmm. It was fun to go talk about front, front porch details and, and, and really mine the architectural intelligence and DNA w- within specific communities. But what we found is that there's a massive opportunity cost to doing that kind of work. It costs a lot of money to pay an architectural studio to spend that kind of time on something. Um, And it takes a lot of time. And all that time and all that money uh, we found can be better spent elsewhere in streamlining processes and in actually delivering value to communities. Because here's the bottom line, you know, when you do, when you go into Claremore, Oklahoma, where where we've worked before, where we have a successful program, you look at their porch beam details, there's nothing unique about Claremore's porch beam details that is not shared by Fayetteville, Arkansas, or yeah. that is not shared indeed by Atlanta, Georgia, right? You can use porch beam details that were designed in Atlanta for Claremore, Oklahoma, or for Bryan, Texas, or uh, a lot of other places. And bringing a little bit of kind of um, streamlined sensibility to our process, um, I, I think is part of what is hopefully going to allow us to scale this thing beyond uh, what we've seen in the past. Uh, yeah, so I, th- I think that that's a perfect intro. You know, if I, if I was going to do an elevator pitch, what, what we do at Pattern Zones is we, we help cities pre-approve building plans to, to make the kinds of projects that they want to see the easiest kinds of projects for, for people to do. And um, the word Pattern Zone re- really came from an attempt to differentiate the the related uh, attempts out there to try and make high quality architecture more accessible, uh, successful. If, if you were to do a survey today and we're building a database of, of case studies now, um, there are hardly more than a dozen pre-approved building programs that are active across the country. There are some historic examples, especially if you start to look at um, uh, TND builders and, and even conventional sub- subdivision builders, there's this notion of having master designs or, or master plan sets on file. Um, so pretty typical when operating at that scale. But in terms of contemporary programs that are meant to deploy jurisdiction wide or, or over a large geography with 
multiple landholders. Um, there may be only a dozen contemporary programs that are out there. And what we call a pattern zone, if it differs from a pre-approved building program in any in any specific way, it's just that we're trying to address anything that comes up during anything that is discovered along the way that could actually get closer to a 100% pre-approval standard. Um, none of these programs uh, have achieved that standard where anybody can walk in and basically take a set of plans off the shelf like a vending machine with a permit attached to it and get to work. There are always some um, additional filings that are necessary that are usually site specific or a, a cursory project review that still has to happen for, uh, for zoning compliance and, and so on and so forth. Um, and so we, we are really focused on trying to achieve that standard. And we, we call it a, a friction-free standard for what that application process actually looks like. So beyond simply having a building permit on file or a contingent permit on file in the building safety division, we're aiming to make things like um, hand-drawn site plans acceptable rather than fully engineered site plans for the initial submission. We're looking to do things like evaluate the required contents of a plan set and make sure that it matches the statutory requirements and that there aren't local requirements uh, that uh, unfairly burden small-scale projects because they're um, not, not applied proportionally. Maybe they're only appropriate for, for large projects. So whatever it is, we try to do a top-to-bottom review or, or a friendly audit, if you were, of these various processes and put all that together. So really going beyond open source plans that are just available, beyond pre-approved plans where those those plan sets have been reviewed and there's a, there's a contingent permit on file, kind of sort of mostly ready to go into a, a kind of a full stack uh, process review to, to make those turnarounds as fast as possible. And it has real benefits. Um, we keep talking about Claremore. We talk about Claremore because Claremore is a small town, 16, 17,000 people. They have a very low head count for administering these, these different processes. So it's really important to have something efficient and they're issuing infill permits in five days or less uh, after receiving the inquiry from applicants. And they're able to do that because when the application comes in, it's not that it looks different from other applications that get approved. It's that when it comes in on day one, it's already substantially correct and substantially complete. So they can do a meaningful review right away. And it just so happens that the architectural component of that has already been reviewed. So, so in total, the review goes by very quickly. So uh, let's talk a little bit about then you've had the chance now to work in a number of communities. Was was Claremore um, really the, the first one of a certain scale that you worked in or what was the first uh, patterns on you deployed? Yeah, the first one was Bryan, Texas. Uh, this is a sister city to College Station, Texas. Uh, any Aggies on the line are going to recognize these two communities. Uh, they surround Texas A&M. And uh, there in Bryan, Texas, they had uh, revitalized, uh, revitalizing uh, downtown. This was a little more than a mile, close to two miles away from the A&M campus. And they had what was called Midtown, which was the urban fabric that connected the campus edge and, uh, and downtown itself. Um, so we helped them initially to really f focus on addressing uh, pressures to construct rent by the bedroom student housing and, and lo looking at uh, more sociable, more resilient options to accommodate that, uh, that, that real estate demand. So that was the first, that was a custom design model. We deployed uh, somewhere around a half dozen buildings 
Uh, Matt was the design, the architect for all of those. Uh, so it was a custom design project. Uh, and it's, we learned a lot of lessons and, and as a whole, that project's very successful. The pre-approval side of that is not as successful as we really hoped it would be. Um, it was our first prototype and we learned a lot. Uh, the second one was Claremore. This program was also a custom design program that Matt was the architect for, but it had fewer buildings. It was different. <clears throat> it was different from Brian in that it was a real builder focused process. So Brian was very focused on public acceptance and, we were so proud of ourselves, patting ourselves on the back and going out for drinks after our town halls because regular people, concerned citizens were saying we'd done it. We'd listened to them. We had designed buildings that they wanted to see in their neighborhoods, even triplexes and single family neighborhoods and, and really upended a lot of the assumptions we have about uh, about planning projects. Claremore wanted to focus on will the builders build this or not? And so we did a pilot project with the builders and we focused on floor plans they liked and so on and so forth. And then um, since then, we've totally changed our business model. Uh, we don't do custom designed architecture for these programs anymore, simply because it's not as cost effective for the clients. Now we, um, we recruit, we actively recruit a, a catalog of buildings, we curate those buildings, and then we, we sub license or relicense those to to the to the jurisdictions. And um, that works out a lot better for them for a couple different reasons. They update their codes. They just don't like a building anymore. Whatever the reason is, they can just swap out the building, right? It's a license for a certain number of buildings instead of licensing specific buildings that have been custom designed for that community. And that, you know, that that can mean a lot of things for in terms of their um, their confidence that the program is going to work and, the, and that it's adaptable. But it also means that we can do a lot more buildings uh, instead of just a half dozen buildings or, or even fewer sometimes. We can now do dozens of buildings for effectively the same costs because these buildings have already been designed. And we love this because we get to help architects make some money on designs they've already done that are really just sitting on a shelf but are still useful, that are still valuable. And we get to deploy those with a community that has housing challenges where either in a particular district or citywide or region-wide, they've really got some pent-up demand and this can help them meet that in a way that is acceptable to the community that doesn't ca cause a backlash like like um, maybe some more avant-garde or more contemporary and fill projects might in a community that's not expecting it. Yeah. yeah the, the catalog approach has, has been really interesting learning about it this last few years that, that we've been deploying this, this new program. You know, I think initially we were more concerned that regional applicability and, and sort of hyper-local design details were going to be more of an issue than they were. But as we've worked across Oklahoma and Texas and now as far as Michigan and New Hampshire, what we found is that, you know, a lot of the neighborhoods that people love in America weren't really built during the 19th century when, when people were doing, you know, completely custom job built homes on every corner. A lot of them actually were built in the early part or the mid middle part of the 20th century when you could open up a catalog and buy a house for 900 bucks and have it shipped to your lot. Yeah. You know, so it turns out if you walk down the street in Lebanon, you see a lot of the same Eve details that you see walking down a street in Overland Park, Kansas. And mm -hmm. so, you know, more of our job as planners and, and, as urban, and as urban designers has to do with the things that really matter more to people, which are, you know, building types, um, what, what kinds of frontages do these buildings have? How wide are the lots? What are we doing with the program to advance the planning goals in, in the community that, that we're working with? 
instead of, like I said before, you know, spending a lot of time drawing architectural details that have already been put to the page for 20 years. Yeah, it's kind of a it's kind of a funny thing. Uh, a lot of people have this idea that uh, I, I mean, I live in an older neighborhood uh, and people think that, oh, all the houses are different. It's so cool. It's so, you know, that's just so different than like modern subdivisions. And it's always fun to point out, I can look outside my window and across the street, there are three houses that are exactly the same house. Uh, they, they might have a little different porch. Maybe they have a hip roof or a gable roof, but they're exactly the same house. And in it was so common, just like you said, late late 19th, early 20th century that, you know, a neighborhood might just have like four or five, six different houses. And that was about it. And they were repeated and little details were tweaked here and there and roof lines, but uh, often really the same house built uh, over and over. Uh, so I, I think that's kind of a fascinating look at, you know, how it transitioned to like the modern pattern zone approach. Yeah, and you know, even in in that example, when we look at historic neighborhoods and we compare those to con- conventional su- subdivisions, there's probably even still more variety in those catalog homes in our historic plats than there are in, in conventional mm-hmm. su- subdivision sure. developments today. This is this is one of the m- most common concerns related to one of the most common concerns we hear from citizens, from architects, from c- city leaders who are considering programs like this is. They say, well, isn't this just going to make everything the same? And it's it's a totally valid concern. There are a variety of ways to deal with it. Um, we have some some regulatory solutions for that that, that kind of enforce variety uh, when needed. But also, if you get the design right, and, and Matt is a huge proponent of this, and, and we tell everybody, you know, design comes first whenever we're curating this catalog and whenever we're helping clients shortlist their portfolio. If you get the design approach right, then there is a sense of familiarity that the portfolio can create that is actually quite charming and, and quite lovely to people who get to experience it. And when, when we're talking about this in, in meetings or in webinars or at conference presentations, we use the example of Paris quite a lot. And n- nobody goes to Paris and says, I'm never going again. All the buildings were the same. And <laughs> There's the uh, American corollary of the Main Street, right? Every Main Street out there looks the same, uh, even down sometimes to the to the stores and, and the proportion of stores from one straight one Main Street to another. And yet we all find them charming. We love to visit them. Uh, we visit them over and over again. And even as soon as we're done visiting one, we're making plans to visit the next. And so we, we definitely have this concern about sameness, but we, we do think design can solve it. And we do think that if we're honest in our observations, there is really um, a healthy sense of sameness, a healthy sense of familiarity, maybe even a design principle here for familiarity in favor of it that um, is essential for placemaking and, and really making communities um, that we that, that, that people can put all of their love into. Yeah, I think, you know, people are often surprised when we have community meetings, when we have stakeholder holder group meetings. Uh, what we mean by when we say we're putting design at the center of the conversation, we literally will bring in sometimes dozens or even hundreds of uh, 3D printed models of the buildings in our catalog to, to frame conversations around these. Um, and, you know, the end product is drawings of those buildings. It's not this kind of Baroque code language that, that you need a, a land use attorney to understand. And that really speaks to people. It, it, it helps them understand what, what are the changes, what are the stakes in their neighborhood. It helps them realize that often uh, we're not talking about 
you know, buildings that are larger than the ones that exist. In fact, most of the time we're talking about buildings that are smaller than the ones that exist in their own neighborhoods because we're trying to be opportunistic about finding places for new things to fit in in familiar ways. So I think framing things from a design perspective really helps with those conversations. There's a there's a real easy example here, Kevin. Um, you know, when when Matt talks about how the deliverable is the buildings instead uh, instead of a new paragraph of zoning language, it's it's profound what sort of a difference this makes. I mean, even to put yourself back in the shoes of somebody who has to write a code update for a community, and you know, there there are questions about what are what are the ideals. And what is normal in practice and how do we separate the ideals into edge cases and, and into what, what is going to be um, uh, kind of the new business as usual or, or what we hope will become the new business as usual. And, you know, so here's the easy example. You know, you could be recoding uh, a, a neighborhood and you could have this question of, you know, what is the ideal height? And the ideal height might be two stories or two and a half stories, but you have to write the code to be more permissive than that. So you end up with three or four stories in the building. And this is, by the way, this isn't meant to be a commentary on on what sort of height is best uh, in, any, in any kind of a uni- universal sense. But we're, we're faced with these choices as planners, as code writers all the time. You know, do we code for what would be ideal or do we code for absolute flexibility, right? And and how do we balance the two? When we when you look at a pre-approved building program, you don't have to do that. You can stop with the question of what is ideal, right? A pre-approved building program is voluntary for applicants. Nobody's forced to use these buildings, these plan sets. They can still file for conventional permits. And so, if you look at uh, you know the trajectory uh, or or the the trends that we hope to see. In, in subdivisions across the country and, and how we hope to infill and repair these these urban fabrics and, and suburban fabrics and, and make them more resilient, more socially resilient, economically, environmentally, et cetera, we can answer these questions straight away. We say what sort of buildings are best for that future, right? And we can choose the footprints. We can choose the building massing. We can choose all of these details for what we we feel uh, and, and what the what the best practices show are uh, the most compatible, uh, are, uh, are the highest quality in, ter- in terms of outcomes, instead of having to write, write the code to be as flexible as possible for all the varied interests. That flexibility still exists, but the easy button is to do so- something that has already been vetted for, uh, for design compatibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's an important point to uh, mention that this is voluntary, that you're not prescribing that every building has to be uh, the way that you have laid out in the zones that, that for somebody who wants something different or creative, they can still use a, a typical process to go through that and, and make that happen. This is kind of just like clearing the ground for simpler, um, more repeatable types that can be done, uh, frankly, more affordably. And in fact, I would even say some people, some of those folks who want something slightly different from what's in the catalog can still use our process. This is something that you know, we, we've got the benefit of a, of a few implemented programs worth of experience now to, to learn about how these are done. And, you know, the truth is uh, they don't always come out of the ground exactly like you drew them. And that's OK. Actually, that's better sometimes that it, that it is that way. And so we've, we've got we spent a good amount of time developing some processes that the city staff can understand and easily implement to allow reasonable changes to the buildings as, as, as they get permitted. Some, sometimes that's 
uh, something as simple as a, a material change or uh, you know a detail change. Some, sometimes it's dramatic as uh, I think I think in one case in, in Claremore they actually attached two of our buildings together, which we, we never uh, considered that someone might do, but but they did it there and and, uh, and there was a process in place for them to do that safely and, and, and get it permitted. So. Well, let's talk. I'd like to talk a little bit about more about the experience in Claremore. I know when you presented on that in Oklahoma City, I was pretty astounded by what you had, uh, what had happened already within the first year or two yeah. of the program. Could you talk about some of the numbers and the impact? There? Yeah, I was just talking with their planning director before the holiday break. So they, they have eight buildings completed and 35 more uh, in at some stage of the pipeline, whether that's their applications about to be approved or it's already coming out of the ground. Um, those numbers aren't huge, but for a town of 17,000 people that would do maybe a half dozen infill permits annually before this program, it's a huge change for it's a huge change for them, uh, especially being able to clerk that new volume with the same staff that, that they had before. Um, so, so that's where they're at now, and that's on what we call version 1.0 of pre-approval programs. Uh, that's all with custom design and only a handful of buildings. And the reason they've enjoyed that success is because they've earned it. Um, they're out there selling this program, marketing this program every chance they get, whether that's at chamber meetings or one-on-one -on -one meetings with individual builders to discuss project concepts for a particular parcel in town. Every time somebody comes to the planning desk, virtually or in person, if the program is available to them, then they're encouraged to use the program because it's faster and, and less expensive for everybody. And, and tends to produce pretty high quality work, more, more high quality than typical projects before this pro program existed. Um, now that's version 1.0. Claremore is migrating to what we call version 2.0. They're going to expand their catalog from a handful of buildings to two dozen different sets of plans. And uh, they're looking at how to move beyond, how to adapt the program outside of uh, their downtown and downtown adjacent neighborhoods and, and into uh, some of their more, more conventional su subdivisions and greenfields that are very likely to develop, uh, whether they have access to this program or not. And so Claremore is, is looking at their migration, their expansion to version 2.0 as a way to raise quality citywide. Uh, in, instead of just downtown and, and just an infill context. And that, that's really what our mission here is whenever with, with these programs is um, we're not we're not trying. We haven't set our sights on creating utopian urban landscapes uh, uh, across the country. I mean, we love to see it. We love to visit those places that are master master planned and actually controlled and, and have such, such amazing outcomes, um, the, the kind of postcard quality outcomes that, that we all know. Um, but that's not really, that, that's not a realistic expectation when we talk about actually retrofitting our suburban environments and, and retrofitting our small town environments, or even our districts inside of our metros, what, no matter how innovative they are. Um, these are going to be done by a lot of different people when we imagine, you know, the future of these districts of these communities in 20 years or 30 years, uh, they're going to be implemented by by dozens or even hundreds of people, depending on how size, uh, how big these places are. And that means these, <clears throat> these programs really do have to accommodate uh, a lot of different interests, a lot of different tastes and a lot of different uh, capacities to do really high quality work. Right. These these programs need to be. Uh, 
let, let's call them everyman programs or, or you know, permitting for that, that is available to, to almost anybody that is accessible to almost anybody who, who has the attitude of um, not giving up and, and ready to figure out how to do one of these projects. And uh, th that, that means that um, we have to be prepared that uh, or, or we have to set a standard for ourselves that says as, as long as these programs create uh, outcomes that are measurably better than what, what would have happened without them. You know, we, we really count that as a, as a success and, and put the utility of the program quite high. Um, and, you know, th this might be a little bit esoteric, but, but we feel it's really important at this stage of the trend to talk about because with there only being a dozen or so programs like this across the country, but, there being, but, but it being such a compelling trend among planners and among city leaders, we're at this really important stage where we need to understand that some programs um, aren't going to work as well as others because we're all experimenting and we've got to learn all those lessons and make sure that these programs get better and better. So we're super excited about Claremore wanting to expand uh, potentially citywide to, to look at how to do better subdivisions alongside better infill because we think pre-approvals is really a technology that can be applied in, in both conditions. Yeah, we, you know, it's no secret that most neighborhoods are designed by civil engineers, most unfortunately, and most houses are designed by contractors. You know, only about 2% of, of homes in, in the country right now are actually designed by architects. So, you know, in, in a nutshell, you might think of this program as, as a way to kind of redo the process and give architects and urban and urban designers a seat at that table that, that they really haven't had ever, uh, you know, if not for the last 60 or 80 years. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, I, I, I love uh, what you're talking about with version 2.0, because uh, one of the questions I always have with some of the version 1.0, not just yours, but uh, other practitioners that I've seen in different parts of the country was this idea of kind of like curating a custom design uh, set of houses or building types for every community that wants to do that. That, that again, kind of gets to that place where it's like, is, is that scalable? Uh, and not, not to mention there actually is a, a an industry of people, architects and house designers who are out there and work on houses every day and small buildings. And it's like, why not tap into that as an incredible resource and, and ha bring them into the, into the fold? You know, one of the most fascinating conversations we had was early in this process. It was actually back in Bryan, Texas, where um, the local... Uh, that the state AIA chapter asked to meet with us and to learn to learn more about the program, and um, you know the the premise of that conversation you can imagine um, was a little bit delicate because we're out of towners coming to develop a uh, an architectural catalog for pre approval use inside that community, and and we're not involving local or regional architects in the, in that scope of work. But through those conversations, we were really, really, really interested to learn a lot. You know, what we kind of found out is that um, for the most part, architects aren't able to access those markets because those markets don't exist. Um, most architects are not getting asked to do custom homes. In fact, very few architects are able to make a, a custom home business a success, a successful design office. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's, it's even more stark when you start to talk about duplexes, triplexes, fourplexes, ADUs, the market for uh, architects to perform professional services for these types of buildings is practically non-existent across the country. And when we, when we talk about how a program like this will affect uh, the, the local architecture community, we, we see it as being a market maker. If 
a person who is interested in doing a project, whatever their reasons are, sees somebody else do a fantastic duplex or a fantastic cottage cord and is inspired by it. That is how a market gets made is, is inspiring more and more people like that at scale. And, uh, as communities, communities like Kansas City, uh, communities like Buffalo, like like so many others, actually try to innovate and actually try to make infill development easy and, and make it a priority to make infill development at least as easy as, as, as subdivision development. Uh, the, those communities, if they pick up a pre-approved building program, they're going to find that they have a tool at their disposal to really create a market for missing middle building types in a way that they didn't that they didn't have um uh, in a way that they weren't able to do before. Matt mentioned earlier on in our conversation that, you know, we see a pattern zone as being something that goes a little bit beyond just a pre-approved building and tries to look more deeply at, at, at the full systems that create and, and entitle uh, permits in different cities. Um, this conversation about the practice of architecture and missing middle housing in particular just got me thinking about that because it's, it's something that we're dealing with quite a bit right now where we go into a town and we find out that the local jurisdiction, you know, the, the building official there has implemented a series of, uh, you know, local policies that go above and beyond state level mandates as, as far as what is required on, on submissions for plans, what is required in terms of code compliance. Um, oftentimes, um, in fact, over half the time, I would say, uh, city requirements go well beyond state requirements. And so you end up with a situation where, for example, you might, you might have a, a builder, a developer who would love to develop a fiveplex, but because of the local requirements on doing that fiveplex, an architect, in order to comply with the standard of care, would need to do so many drawings that it becomes cost prohibitive for someone to actually draw a fiveplex that, that complies with the code from a documentation standpoint, uh, while actually penciling on the development side. You just there's just not enough units to pay for that much design time. Right. So right. this this is one thing you know. Pile this on to the to the pile of you know zoning and development and entitlement and permitting, all the different stuff that we look at throughout a pattern zone. We look really deeply at these building safety policies and, and work really hard to get uh, city and state alignment so that so that you don't have a situation where a municipality is, is pushing beyond what a state is requiring and actually in that way, making that missing middle even more missing. Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting, Matt, thinking about your own uh, path as an architect and I think about my, my trajectory when I when I came out of college and I worked mostly on institutional and commercial projects, like a you know like you see in most architecture firms, uh, when I started working on residential, it was it was an incredible eye opener uh, to myself to my former business partner that um, you know it, it was like entering a totally different world and not understanding the fee structures, the amount of work, the relationship to contractors. Uh, and I still try to communicate this to people all the time that it really is like two different ecosystems. And I, and I say all that because it's like you learn that this, that kind of really hardcore cost of effectiveness and time effectiveness is critical uh, for these kinds of small buildings or they just won't get built. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I feel like there's, 
there's a lot more we could get into. Uh, I want to be uh, appreciative of your time uh, as well. Uh, what do you have on the horizon going forward that you're looking at uh, in terms of communities you're working in and uh, and implementing sort of version 2.0 as you describe it? Yeah, in 2024, we'll see uh, deployments in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Uh, for those who don't know, it's a town of uh, close to 100,000, a little bit less in northwest Arkansas, a broader region of half a million. Uh, Overland Park, Kansas, just outside of Kansas City. Uh, Lebanon, New Hampshire, small town of about 17,000 people in, uh, on the, the west side of the state there. Uh, Claremore is going to migrate. And then we're especially excited. We don't know if this will deploy next year, um, but, but we're especially excited about work we're doing with the Michigan State Land Bank. Uh, they engaged us uh, alongside uh, Marcus King, a Detroit architect, to develop a framework for local land banks to implement these sorts of programs. Um, we're specking that framework for uh, with, with the Detroit Land Bank and the in the city of Detroit, so that may be the first place it deploys. But the the state land bank has a goal of seeing uh, local and county land banks across the state use this technology to help facilitate. Uh, transactions on land banked parcels, which are not notoriously difficult uh, to, to, uh, to sell, uh, especially whenever they're trying to qualify the buyers. I'd say on, on my side, we're also you know, still building the catalog, still designing buildings and, and still trying to be innovative with, uh, with, with prototypes and, and building types. You know, just one example that we talked about at, at CNU a few months ago um, most people don't realize that, you know, in, in the 19th century, just over 100 years ago, somewhere between a third and a half of people in this country lived in rented rooms. Um, you know, that this was before mobile homes, before LIHTC, before Hope 6, before home funds, before all that. You know, this was how we did affordable housing. Um, these were buildings that um, not always, but, but sometimes were really dignified. And I, I think it's something that... Um, with a little bit of, of ingenuity and some good conversations between us and, and fire, fire marshals and, and building safety officials, uh, we're excited to kind of open up, reopen that conversation about boarding houses and lodging houses and, and see what we can do to be innovative in that space. Because, you know, as, as, as I'm sure you're aware of, affordable housing is like the first or second question we get asked every single place that we go. I'm sure. Yeah, there's the whole class of building type called the apartment hotel, yep. which basically has just vanished into history, but was an incredibly important building type for decades and decades. That's where people lived, especially young people when they came to a city and they didn't know anybody and they were there for work. They would go live in these, uh, basically what were rooming houses, but very often very large. Um, what do you think is the upper bounds on the size uh, of a building that you could handle through a program like this. Uh, obviously, you can do single-family houses, duplexes. What do you, how, where do you think that? What's the upper bound? Well, I think there's there's two questions there. There's what what could we do and what should we do, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, so we're we're often we're we're drawing these maps when when we get into a community about okay, here's the study area, and then we're kind of narrowing that down into the actual area of implementation. We'll often carve out. Uh, main streets and, and signature signature corners. You know these are these are places that um, maybe should be reserved for custom architectural works. You know either either uh, you know civic sites or or just in really intense uh, commercial areas that, that might not be appropriate for for this kind of work. Um, so that's the should. 
what what could we do um, is obviously there there are, are fewer limits, but but the limits are much harder um, when we do find them, and they're entirely code based. Uh, and, and so I, I don't I don't want to bore your listeners to tears and talk about overlapping limits on on architectural stamping rules versus building code documentation rules, but um, uh, the way in which those things interact is is one of the most critical things that we look at. When we when we start with one of these programs, and and um, you know, I think I think generally, um, generally speaking, our adherence to design and, and and our perspective about trying to maintain familiarity within the neighborhoods that we're working in uh, sends us in a direction that is maybe on the medium side to a little bit smaller side of what's what's currently there. And that's also coincidentally a happy place in, in that overlapping matrix of, of, uh, of different codes that we have to handle. So that tends to be our, our happy spot. I don't know if that answers your question. Does that make sense? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I, I would say, Kevin, we're, we're desperate. We're, uh, we're, we're preoccupied really with um, how to make these programs work. For, for middle scale buildings, especially apartment buildings and, and neighborhood scale mixed use. Um, we, we think that is kind of the pinnacle of where this technology, if, if you consider policies and programs to be technology like we do, like we're, talk, like we're talking of them in this podcast, um, that, that, that's what we think the pinnacle of the technology is. It's not there yet. Um, somebody, a client who, is, who has an innovative attitude could take it there. Um, we get all of our clients ask us to figure that out. And right now what we tell everybody is let's get started with, with smaller buildings that have simpler permitting requirements. And then let's expand the program later after, after the fact. Um, and we, we think that's not just wise. Uh, we, we think it's pretty essential. We started the, the top of the call talking about form-based codes you know, some of the challenges that you see with, with form-based codes are the, are the same with these sorts of programs, meaning it's just new, right? You have to take an, a staff right. who is already responsible for administering a, co- a code base and a jurisdiction, and you're giving them a new program. And there are multiple divisions involved in, in, in most cases. Um, there's There are enterprise risks as, associated with trying to do something new like this. So in the meantime, we're, we're sticking adamantly to one and two unit buildings uh, plus townhomes. And uh, in the future, maybe as soon as 2025, we really hope to be a middle scale stuff. But we don't think pre-approvals ever go beyond that. Um, you know, we don't want to confuse pre-approvals with master plans or, or ma- master development agreements. There's a place for having you know, a high degree of coordination and control for district level development. But when we talk about pre-approvals, um, we, we think it's small and middle scale only. You know, large scale projects have life safety implications, they have regional impl- implementation implications or community-wide implications. They deserve robust review. Very small scale projects deserve almost no review. We should be rubber stamping very small scale stuff. And mo- modest stuff, middle scale stuff that fits a form that isn't experimental or avant-garde, we should basically be rubber stamping that too. We should be giving that a modest review. So that's kind of our philosophy is pre-approvals, this new standard that's beyond by right, right? Certainly above conditional uses and beyond even by right. It's a new standard that hasn't existed before. Uh, stuff that still requires a real robust review, very large scale developments, probably really not a good fit for these programs. Yeah. 
yeah, I think in my Kansas City centric uh, view of the world, uh, you know, we have uh, we have an urban core populated with walk up apartment buildings, four plexes and six plexes, which we often refer to as uh, Kansas City colonnades because they tend to have like a classical uh, front to them, and, and they're basically literally like the same building sprinkled all over multiple neighborhoods. And so I feel like that is like an area that I'd like to get to. It's like, if we can do that type, you know, just a nice, simple sixplex that we could repeat everywhere, that that would be really cool. Uh, and then, yeah, I think some of the small mixed use types through maybe three or four apartments, you know, above a, uh, above a store, but, but you're right beyond that, there are serious other implications especially building codes that you have to take into consideration. Yeah. And it, by the way, there is a path forward on all this, like b- building codes out of the, uh, off the shelf are not well suited to these, but every building official and, and most jurisdictions in most States have the authority to make these changes with appropriate consideration and, and deliberation along, along the way. So there really is a, a way forward. If Kansas city, wants to see more of those colonnade uh, uh, buildings. And uh, those are my favorite that Kansas city city building type. They're so iconic, you know, all Kansas city needs to do. They've already fixed the rules from what we can tell is pre-approve those sorts of buildings, tailor the rules to that sort of building. And I guess probably also build up a concrete factory to make those, those columns widely available <laughs> once more. But other than that, I, you know, there's not much standing in the way of that building type. Yeah. All right. Well, Matt and Matt, I really appreciate the time today. I know you're, you're both uh, busy guys. Uh, so uh, we'll get past uh, the technical snafus here and uh, get this loaded up to the system soon. But really appreciate your expertise and your willingness to share on this. And I think it's an incredible, uh, innovative area. And I'm looking forward to see how this evolves uh, over time. So uh, when, are, when are you coming up to Kansas City again? When am I going to see you in person? Um, to be determined, but, uh, probably March will be, will be up there uh, again, maybe February, but probably March. March is a great time. I go up there pretty frequently to watch the Royals lose to whoever's in town. So <laughs> that, secret pleasure that, of mine. that is a, that's a ritual we all enjoy is <laughs> constant losing. Mm. We have one or two good years uh, every 30 years and, you you know, and then a lot of losing. So All right. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate your time. Thank you, Kevin. Take care. Bye.